one thing that has been really amazing about reporting on this industry is that I actually am really inspired by it and get really motivated by it. And I'm just so motivated by all the amazing women that are also balancing running with jobs and also families. Like, I think every single woman that's qualifying for the Olympic marathon trials right now and all the women behind them, too, like sometimes just comes down to talent. It's not about work. And I totally respect that. What the women are doing right now specifically is amazing. And I think I've kind of been like, if they can do this, I can too. Like it's very tiring and I can always stop. I think that's important to remember. And that's what I tell myself when I start to get really tired. I'm like, I don't have to do this. Like remember why I'm doing it. It's because I want to. And I think that's enough to kind of keep me going. That's Lindsay Krause. And this is episode 87 of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and this week I sat down with Lindsey Krauss, who is a producer, editor, and writer at the New York Times and a pretty damn fast marathoner in her own right. If you've been paying any attention to running news the past couple years or just big headlines in general, you are definitely familiar with Lindsey's work. Some of her most popular pieces include The Shalane Effect, which she wrote about Shalane Flanagan and the elevating effect she's had on other women. She broke the piece about how Nike does not guarantee female athletes a salary during their pregnancies or immediately after giving birth. She produced the piece in which Allison Felix told her story around Nike and pregnancy. And most recently, she was responsible for the Mary Kane op-ed speaking out about the abuse she suffered under her former coach, Alberto Salazar. We recorded this episode a couple weeks ago before the New York City Marathon, so the Mary Kane piece had not dropped yet, but we got into plenty of other good stuff, including Lindsay's own trajectory as both a writer and a runner, the biggest takeaways from her reporting that she has applied to her own training, how her experience as a competitive athlete informs her perspective as a journalist, and a lot more. All right, let's dive right into it. Please enjoy my conversation with Lindsay Krause. Lindsay Krauss, welcome to Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thanks for having me. So this is going to come out in a couple of weeks, but a few hours from now, you are going to be awarded with the George Hirsch Journalism Award by the New York Roadrunner. So congratulations, Thank number you. one. How are you feeling a few hours out from your award ceremony? Um, I'm really excited. I mean, I was I was really excited, and um, I don't use this word lightly, but I was really honored when they gave it to me because I, you know, everything I do in distance running is mostly just because I love the sport. It's not my real job insofar as like you know, my paycheck doesn't change whether or not I do it. And I do it on nights and weekends mostly. So this was, I usually just get satisfaction for it. It was really exciting to kind of get uh, get that kind of recognition from the industry that I care about. Was it surprising for you at all? Yeah, it was incredibly surprising. I mean, I barely even call myself a sports journalist. I'm an opinion editor and producer um, in the opinion department here at the Times um, and spend most of my time after work just like running a lot. So um, yeah, I was incredibly surprised. You you kind of, you hear from people that they read what you write or, you know, the op-eds that you carry, but you don't necessarily realize it's making an impact until, until someone speaks up and tells you. And you're never doing it under the impression that, oh, maybe I'll be awarded for this someday. Oh, no, abs- I mean, absolutely not. Um, I think for myself, half the time, I don't know why I'm doing it, except that there was a while where I was actually, I was thinking about this. I think it wasn't even until my, I was in my late 20s that I realized, well, I guess until my late 20s, I didn't realize that I liked sports journalism. I always skipped the sports pages. And then at one point I was like, well, wait a second, I'm an athlete. Like I'm in sports um, and I'm just not necessarily seeing the stories that I want to read. And that was why I started writing them. And so for me, it was really validating to kind of see that it is having an impact and that there is an audience for that. As you mentioned, your full-time job is working here in the opinions department at New York Times. But over the past, I think it's been two years now since Shalane Flanagan's win, you've had a number of running-centric pieces. You had the Shalane effect, which I will link to in the show notes, and I recommend everyone listening to this to read it if you haven't already. Um, just a couple months ago, was it even a couple months ago, was the big story about Nike and pregnancy clauses, mm-hmm. and that had a very quick and profound effect on what's written into a lot of these women's contracts. What was the first running 
centric piece that you wrote under the New York Times? Yeah. So there, you know, I, I started here as an assistant. I think the job was like almost like secretary or something. When I first started, I was an assistant to um, the former executive editor, Bill Keller. And um, it was just like a really low level job, but it was kind of like the kind of thing where the sky was the limit if you worked hard enough and were entrepreneurial enough. Um, but there was no necessary like path to promotion. And so I was here, you know, for a few years and I was just kind of like doing my running thing on the side. And then, um, one day I was in central park and I just saw these, um, these Latino guys that you could, I, I just kind of gathered that they were maybe working class, but they were super, super fast. And so I was at a water fountain and I just asked one, um, one guy who he ran for and like what his job was. And he was a line chef. His name was Julio Sauce and he was a line chef, um, at a pretty fancy restaurant in near my office in Times Square. And, um, it turned out he was on this team of like just incredible, both Ethiopian, like kind of like, like elite runners. And then, um, uh, a lot of Latino runners, um, from all around the city and they were just silently dominating the age group um, in New York and the New York City Marathon specifically, um, working around like pretty grueling working class jobs. Um, they would just train. And I think it was forming like it really was satisfying for them. And also they were excellent at it. And so I published that story. Well, I pitched that to the to the editor and he was like, yeah, sure, do it. And for sports or for, for the sports section, okay. um, it was a different editor at the time. And he was kind of like, yeah, like, go out there and do it, kiddo. Um, and it wound up being like the cover story for the sports section, like kind of leading the marathon coverage and was like the most widely read article on the Times like that day or something. And for me, that was like, oh, there's something here where if I just kind of like look for the stories that I see and I think are interesting and kind of answer for me what's going on here, who is this person, um, maybe other people will care too. What year was that? Uh, maybe 2014. Okay. So not that long ago in no. the grand scheme of things. Yeah, yeah. And from there, how did your position here at the Times evolve? Because you're still not writing about sports primarily. You're in the opinion section. So did that happen not long after that? I'd love to just get an idea of your trajectory. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess you could say that any sports writing, and this is why that honor from the New York Roadrunners really did mean a lot to me. I guess you could say any any sports reporting that I have done has been really tangential to my actual career, which is I've been really fortunate here since I was an assistant to kind of move up and curate our short documentary series, um, which is just, that's like my main job. Like if you were to say that like Nick Thompson is the editor of Wired, like I'm the producer of Opducks at the New York Times. Um, and so all the reporting that I've done on sports is just on the side. It's just like if I'm contributing to the sports section, it's freelance. If it's up here, it's just because I'm passionate about it and really want to write about something and almost like answer a question that I have um, up here. And there is the platform and I really value that. Um, but it was really this year um, when I got a new boss in opinion video, this guy named Adam Ellick, he was like, no one's ever asked me to do anything before on this. And he was like, could you please, like, I know you're, you're good at this. Like, could you just do something for us that's going to move the needle on something? Um, and I'd done a story about pregnant athletes because uh, a lot of my peers were having children and still trying to compete. Um, I think that was maybe in 2015. Um, and it was just kind of about how at one point you couldn't have a baby really, um, and be a professional runner. And then that was changing and women were still getting good. And so it's kind of like the positive sides of all that. Mm -hmm. But when I was reporting that back in the day, I had heard these whispers from like, you know, a few athletes who had had these experiences who said, um, you know, it's not all just positive. Like a lot of times we're kind of suffering on the side. Um, and so that had always kind of, I'd filed that away. And then when my editor was like, J could you do something? And like, most importantly, he was like, we'll support you. Revisit some of those notes. Yeah. yeah. And so then I had to really do a deep dive, almost like an investigation and make sure that that was all true, um, which was hard because there's NDAs on all these contracts. Do you ever find yourself in a position of like almost tug of war where you've got your day job and you sometimes you can fold some of these stories into your day job and pursue them and spend most of your working time on them versus some of these other on the side type projects like well, the Shalane effect, I guess, was for the opinion section. Mm -hmm. um, didn't go in, you know, in the sports department. But do you ever find yourself sort of torn between uh, wanting to do more kind of sports writing and reporting and op-ed stuff that you're doing day to day? Yeah, I mean, I definitely do. Um, it's something that I think about all the time. And I mean, every time you have this conversation, people say, I mean, I think part of what I've been doing here has been 
almost like making the case for investment in more things around the kind of stories that I care about and really proving that there is an audience for this and that almost like that particularly in this, like in running, for example, like at distance running is not, like women are not adjacent to the sport. In my mind, they're kind of leading the sport. And so in my mind, I'm like, why can't my coverage of the sport from a female perspective lead coverage of the sport? Um, but you can't just expect sometimes that editors are just going to believe you when you say that. You have to show that it's true. And so I think part of how I've tried to do my job this year is to say, I'm just going to I'm just going to write the stories, even if I'm not paid for it, like, and just kind of get them out there. If they have enough of an audience, maybe at some point I can turn that into something where I can make money from it. Have you always been that way where you've pursued things that interest you primarily? Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely always been the kid where my extra credit projects are the ones that I care about the most. Like, I mean, I think it's a smart way to look at your life. Like, don't just do your job, do what you care about. And um, hopefully you can do, hopefully whatever you're pursuing that you really care about, you can parlay into a, into a job where it's actually sustainable. But it is the kind of thing where sometimes I mostly just get like sleep debt from it. <laughs> not, not much else. Yeah. I mean, you and I have talked training in the past and we'll get into that over the course of this conversation, but I wonder how you fit it all in. Cause between the demands of your day job, the travel associated with that, some of these sort of side projects that you're doing in training at a very high level, I'm like, Oh, is there a Lindsay Krauss clone somewhere <laughs> out there who is getting her miles in for? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's been a, a difficult training cycle in that I mean, I guess we'll talk about this, but one thing that has been really amazing about reporting on this industry is that I actually am really inspired by it um, and get really motivated by it. And I'm just so motivated by all the amazing women that are also balancing running with jobs and also families. Um, like, I think every single woman that's qualifying for the Olympic marathon trials right now and all the women behind them too, like some of us are just you know, sometimes just comes down to talent. It's not about work. Um, and I totally respect that. It's like what the women are doing right now specifically is amazing. And I think I've kind of been like, if they can do this, I can too. Like it's very tiring and I can always stop. I think that's important to remember. And that's what I tell myself when I start to get really tired. I'm like, I don't have to do this. Like remember why I'm doing it. It's because I want to. And I think that's enough to kind of keep me going. Have you always had an entrepreneurial type of mindset as well? Because I just picked that out of what you were describing in terms of how you're approaching your job here. Yeah. I mean, I think that's been a really cool thing about the times is that when I first came here, it was not a place that was very open to entrepreneurialism. Like I said, when I started, I was an assistant and they told me there's a two-year expiration date on this job and there is no path to promotion. Obviously, I didn't take a job here at age 26 to you know, leave at age 28 and have nothing to do. Um, so I was like, well, that won't happen to me. Like, I want to be different. I want to move up here, but the job that I want doesn't exist. And I think that's actually a cool way, if you can swing it, to think about your career that you know, people sometimes ask me, what's my end goal? Like, what do I want to do next? And I think I'm often, my answer is often that the job that I want doesn't exist yet. I want to do something that was made for me. Create it for yourself. Yeah, totally. And I think that's what's been cool about what I've been doing here in Opinion Video. Like we do have a number of articles and videos coming out on women in sports. And it's not because someone assigned that to me. It's because um, I because I came up with it and I think it might wind up having more impact that way because it was organic instead of retroactive. So you prefer those type of situations where you just throw yourself in, there's no clear path, but you're committed to figuring it out. Yeah. I mean, also, I mean, there are ways to kind of think about this too, where I think there's no pressure when no one's telling you that you have to do it. Um, and I think that's actually helped me succeed as well. Like that's more of like a psychological thing, but I've often wondered, I mean, I think you could talk this, talk about running this way too. Like if I were a professional athlete, I wonder about this sometimes. I'm like, it might actually be harder because I'd have to be good. I would have to do this workout. Um, if I were, if, if run, if reporting about women were my, in athletes were my, or running was my full-time job, I would have to be making sure that something were really good all the time or like on the front page or most read article or, you know, making a policy or something. But instead it's all just like, I see something, I think it's good. I spend time making it better and that's all up to me. It's kind of best of both worlds yeah. type of situation. Yeah. Did you always know that you wanted to get into journalism? Um, I always wanted to be a writer, like when I was younger. Um, yeah. And I always liked reports and stuff. Um, I, my high school didn't have a newspaper, so I didn't really know what, what, exactly how like journalism worked, I guess. Um, but 
as soon as I got to college, I changed my homepage to the New York Times and, um, you know, it was free then to everyone. And I just was obsessed with the Times. I just loved everything about it. Um, and I always wanted to contribute in that way. Did you study journalism at Harvard? Uh, no, I was a history major. So Harvard didn't have a lot of uh, career-oriented majors, and um, and I didn't do the Crimson, which is their newspaper, because I was a little intimidated. Um, and I ha- and I did run sort of on and off. Like a lot of my best friends were were runners there. Like I wasn't wasn't very good, but um, but I was investing time in that. And um, I was just like, if I'm also pulling all nighters at the Crimson, and then like also running, I was already pulling all nighters for school. So I guess like that work ethic is carried over. But yeah. I wasn't doing journalism per se there. What did you do in the time that you graduated from Harvard till you took that job at the New York Times at 26 years old? Yeah, so the first, so I moved to New York and <laughs> moved into this like almost like flop house with a few with like six other people that had just graduated from college with me, um, like some guys, some girls I didn't totally know, and the rent was like eight hundred dollars. There were like more mice as roommates than like actual people in the apartment, and. Um, I just gave myself like this expiration date of like, you can like try to make this work for a few months, but like, you don't have a ton, like, I don't know how many thousands of dollars you earned in college, but it was probably not more than four. Um, and so I think I got an internship at New York magazine and then I was an editorial assistant and then I started working in global health. Um, and I was, I was a consultant for the Bill and Melinda Gates foundation, but on the side, this whole time I'd been working almost in like also this kind of entrepreneurial way for these writers. So at first I worked for a guy named Warren St. John, who was writing a book about a refugee soccer team in George, in the state of Georgia. Um, and kind of looking at sports through the lens of these immigrants, um, or immigrants through the lens of sports. And then, um, I got passed around to Josh Foer, who's writing a book about moonwalking with Einstein. And then I got passed to Jody Cantor, who wasn't as famous them, but now you probably know is the woman that um, with Megan Toohey uh, broke the Harvey Weinstein, uh, sort of launched mm-hmm. that Me Too movement. And she was writing a book about the Obamas. And um, I mean, I can't say enough positive things about her, like everything about um, the way that she approaches her journalism from a feminist perspective, she abs- absolutely reflects and just how she conducts herself on a day-to-day basis. And um, she, as soon as I started working for her and, you know, had done some good work for her, um, you know, I had to earn it, but she was like, she just started sending me entry level jobs at the times. And I was like, you can only get these jobs through knowing someone. Um, and so even though I was older and had to build up that network of like, again, working on nights and weekends for these writers, she was the one that introduced me to Bill Keller and, um, basically helped me get hired as his assistant. So that was how I came here. It's interesting to see how all, all of those seeds got planted and now have grown into where you are now. Cause even going back to your time at Harvard studying yeah. history, which is a lot of you know, research and understanding sort of like historical patterns and some degree of investigation, knowing you wanted to be a writer, trying to carve your path, getting here in New York, learning from some very experienced and accomplished people, and then just getting your foot in the door and taking you to where you are now. Totally. I mean, I would actually say just on on the note of studying history, obviously, like people talk all the time about whether the humanities are worth it or not. But you know, in high school, history was mostly just memorizing facts. And I think there's actually, that's important. Um, clearly, right now, we can see in the national dialogue that not everyone um, has had that, you know, chance or been been exposed to certain facts. Um, so you've got to do that. But then at, at Harvard, it was almost like, now think about who wrote these facts and think about what they are telling you and think about why they're telling you it was that way. And then maybe realize that who wrote this history wasn't necessarily right. And I think that was such a powerful lesson for me. Mm -hmm. And I think has actually um, informed a lot of the way that I've approached the stories that I write is that just because it's almost like in the way that I thought I didn't like sports until I was in my late twenties when I was an athlete this entire time, I just didn't like sports the way that they were being presented to me. And, but that's not to say that, you know, kinds of stories that I've been interested in, the kind of like athletic accomplishments of certain women that I've noticed, like that's also sports. It's just not making its way to the front page as often, unless I do my my work of trying to get it there. Did you get a lot of questions from friends and family when you're graduating college as far as what you were going to do with your history degree? I mean, I don't even think my dad knows what I studied, so not, not necessarily, but I think they were kind of like, how are you going to support yourself um, and like figure that out? Um, I asked that because I got a lot of the same questions majoring in philosophy and psychology. What are you going to do with that? Yeah. I mean, and I, I don't think there is an answer, but I think what's been cool about the way that I've, 
I mean, it's not always cool because it's stressful, but the way that I've approached my career is that there's no answer. Like I haven't answered that question. Like my career continues to evolve. I have no idea if it's going to evolve in a way that I'm excited about or not, but. Well, it's this constant process of trying to figure it out. Yeah. Which as you just described, will put you on edge uh, most of the time probably, but it's also very exciting to be there and open to the possibilities of what could be next. And you've probably been this way too. It's kind of like, again, of course you need to do your job. You need to do what you're paid for. But I don't think it's wise to stop there. I think it's wise to continue to pursue as long as you have the bandwidth, which, of course, it only gets harder. Um, and also you only get more opportunities. And then at some point you're like, like I am this week, like, oh, my God, I'm so tired. Um, but um, I think it's important to just think that, you know, the person that's most in control of your job and your work is you. And I think that I think a lot of distance runners know that because, again, if you're not professional, no one's telling you to get out there and do that. Like, even if you have a coach, it's actually you that are making those decisions and executing on them. Yeah. And you can't fake your way through it as an yeah. athlete either. If you want to run a three hour marathon or qualify for Boston or qualify for the trials or whatever it may be for you, if you don't put in the work, you're not going to get there. Totally. And you can look yourself in the mirror afterward and just say, like, I, I, didn't put in the work. Like I don't deserve that. And I do think that attitude carries over into different aspects of your life. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's important to have North stars, right? Like, um, sort of, I want to like in running right now, like I've, I've noticed all these women that are just like me with like, um, athletic profiles where maybe they were like better than me in college, but they were certainly not like Shalane Flanagan. Um, uh, they're never going to be professional runners. And right now they're having the best, um, like the athletic breakthroughs, like far later in their life than they probably ever expected. And I kind of am too. And it's like, you just, you know, the trials are, these are arbitrary numbers, right? Um, but you aim for them. And if you even bother trying to aim for them, like you'll maybe do your workouts a little faster than you because you have to, because you're aiming for this really hard goal. And at some point you realize you can do it. Maybe you can't do it as fast, but you can do it way faster than you thought you could. Or you realize what's possible for yourself because it's easy to put a limitation on how good you think you should get. But if you aim high, it's like that old cheesy quote. It's like, all right, aim for the moon. If you miss, you'll land like amongst the stars. So it's like aim, aim high. But it's like, even if you don't get that, um, you're probably going to get a lot further than you would have otherwise. So what is there to lose? Yeah, no, it, it's so funny. I was connecting with this guy who I've never met, but he's also training for the trials and at CIM, but uh, Pete Bromka. And he was saying that about his race at CIM last year. And I was like, that was my favorite high school quote. Like, um, like shoot for the moon. And even if you miss, you still fall among the stars. I say that at work all the time. I just tell people like, we're going to aim for an Oscar. Like we're going to aim for an Emmy. We're going to aim for somewhere that, because my Opdocs franchise is a little scrappy. We're not sort of like the flag ship um a series of the New York Times and so everything we do is just kind of like us and I'm like well we'll just follow among the stars what can we lose Bronk is going to love that you mentioned him on this podcast by um, the way he's a friend of mine I oh, know great. he listens in so shout out to Peter Bronka <laughs> yeah uh, sure he, we, he Instagram messaged me last night and he was like um how's your training going I was like glad you asked because I am trying to get myself out the door <laughs> yeah Hey, we're going to take a quick break because I want to tell you about our sponsor for this episode. It's Path Projects. Path Projects makes running shorts with three or four zip pockets so you can carry your phone, keys, gels, ID, whatever you want really, without things bouncing around when you run. These shorts are great for both road and trail running from 5K to 240 miles and even beyond if that's your thing. The Prime Flex material is lightweight, it dries quick, and it's breathable. They're super comfortable and they allow you to move freely at whatever speed you're running. Path Projects also offers baseliners, shirts, and headwear. All the gear is only available at pathprojects.com, and it ships to customers worldwide. I have quite a few pieces of their gear, and I'm a huge fan. Path's apparel is stylish. It's subtly designed and highly functional. I pretty much live in the Cascade short sleeve tee, and I love wearing it on the run and even out to coffee afterward. Right now, Path is giving away three $75 gift cards to Morning Shakeout listeners. That's all of you. And you can enter for a chance to win one of them at pathprojects.com slash Mario. That's pathprojects.com slash Mario. My thanks to Path Projects for their support of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. Let's shift gears and talk about running. When did the sport first come into your life? Um... So I was a soccer player when I was little, and I was good at soccer, and I loved that. And then um, I did outdoor track my freshman year, but I was pretty bad. And then I just had one 
race, it was like the class championships or something. I, mean, I was in Rhode Island. Like this is not a competitive league. And I think that's what's so interesting so much about a lot of these things is that small ponds, like it's, that's why like training for the trials is important because it's like you need to be making yourself mentally in a mm-hmm. bigger pond. Um, so I was in a small pond. Um, and then I just broke through um, – like in the 1500 when I was a freshman, I just like started sprinting at the final 200 and I was like, Oh, this is what it is. Like, this is what racing is. That's when the light bulb went off for you. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and also I've heard other women say this, which makes me feel less, um, I was always kind of, I thought this was just me, but, um, I didn't like in high school that a coach could control whether or not I played. And I didn't like that if I scored a lot of goals, it would almost like have me be taken out because Mm -hmm. we were ahead. And I was like, but that's not like, that feels very counterproductive. And I loved that in, um, in track, if I got ahead, I could just win. Um, like that was amazing. It was all on your shoulders. Yeah. And I think, um, I think a lot of girls actually like that control more than maybe we realized we did or something, but I didn't like leaving it up to a coach. Why do you think that is? Um, I mean, I've, I've been thinking about this a lot. I think, um, I mean, I think when I was younger, I did like to run um, a little bit because I could control it. I think um, socially, especially, like, I was a really high-achieving girl, and I think the higher achieving you are as a girl, the more people almost, like, do want to tell you what to do because you're obedient and you listen and you follow directions. And I think that was definitely the case for me. I felt, I always felt like, you know, 1,600 in your SATs, like, straight A's, like, and almost track was, like, the counterbalance to that where I was, like... I could never manage to win states, but I was always sec- I was often second, um, and they were, the two would kind of balance them out mentally for me, which was very really tiring. Um, but so anyway, I think I would run for almost like that control for a really long time, and I think that you know that can that can actually not be good for you after a while. And I think it took getting injured a lot, like in my twenties, to to have it be like actually I think now I just run more for freedom. Do you ever? feel yourself, I don't want to say regressing, but going back to that where you're running for that feeling of control or have you, has that ship sailed? No, I think, um, I mean, it's like a weird thing to talk about, but, um, like I, you can almost be blessed, I think, um, counterintuitively by like taking that control too far. And as soon as like, for me, it came my senior year of high school when I got into Harvard and I was just so stressed out about that. I was like, I'm not good enough to go to the school that like, I was always told I should go to, but probably won't be good enough to get into. And so, and also then I let go of like the, the academic part. Cause I was like, whatever, I am so tired of math and <laughs> staying up all night studying for math. Um, and just like, and also got beaten by a bunch of girls in a private school meet that I all knew was they were all going to the Ivy League too. And I was like, yeah, I'm not good enough. And so I was like, probably just need to like buckle down here and have the discipline. And I think I lost like 20 pounds in two months or something. It was like really, it was really intense. You were carrying a lot of stress. Yeah, it was like, it was so bad. And I think um, after I came out of that, it was like, it almost like cured me of it because I never wanted that control through running again. I realized it's actually worse for you than like almost like pushing for what I thought would make me the best, made me the worst. Um, and it just cured it, cured me of that. How did your relationship with running evolve after high school? So then in college, our team, one of my, one of my teammates, Bev Antunes, um, she jokes that she was really good in college. Um, and she's since gotten quite good as well. Um, between like having two babies, she was like one of the inspirations for, um, for writing some of the articles that I wrote about pregnancy. Um, but she was like, one time we did, we all did like a hood to coast relay and she was like, yeah, we did not peak in college. Um, and I think she meant, um, obviously that we were never good enough to peak in college, but I always took that to kind of to heart. I was like, yeah, there's more, there's more to come afterwards. Um, but yeah, I was never, our coach was not, you know, terribly invested, I wouldn't say. And we weren't amazing for the Ivy league, which is a super competitive league. And, um, so I think I made amazing friendships and was also kind of like sorting through redefining, you know, what I was going to be like as an adult, as a lot of people do in college. And then when I came out, it was like, and I, I don't think I was even athletically talented enough to be good, um, to be really good in the Ivy league. And then I came out and I was like, actually marathon running is so refreshing because you're, it's all the, all the stability comes from you, all the state, all like the schedule. And I just felt, I felt like it was such a nice balance to work. Um, and you know, friends like social stuff. So when you had that shift from high school where, you know, you ended up taking all this time off and essentially like reset you before going into college, did you have, was it another experience like that after you got out of college and could start pursuing the marathon and some longer distances? Um, I just started pursuing it with the friends that I had in the city. A lot of my, a lot of the people I was living in that 
crazy apartment. Um, we were rowers and runners. So, um, there was kind of like a built-in group of people to run with. Um, but we weren't, we weren't like crazy intense about it or anything. It was just um, fun. Yeah. Something to do together. Yeah. And I mean, it's easy to figure out how to trans- translate your high school and college training to the marathon. It's almost like easier just add long runs. So that was all pretty easy. Like I think my first marathon was a 323 and I was just aiming for a 330. I just wanted to qualify for Boston. So I was pumped. Like I always tell everyone, finish your first marathon wanting to do another. And that totally worked for me. And then I just kept getting faster, like kept trying and trying. And it was funny because I just like, I would keep setting a goal where it was like, you know, I really wanted to break 310 and then I was just going to like give up. And then I ran, and then I ran a 311. And so 310 wasn't good enough anymore. I had to break three hours. And so, and then when I was trying to break three hours, I ran a 309. So it was like, you know, it it just keeps going and going, but I think all in a positive way. Yeah, I think almost anyone listening to this podcast can probably yeah. relate to that on some level, whereas the bar just keeps getting moved for yeah. one reason or another. Yeah. You just keep realizing like little tweaks that you can make, right? And it, addictive isn't the right word, although I think that is a way that you can describe it. I, th- I mean, if, if you do describe it that way, it's like a positive addiction, I, I think. I mean, you have to be careful to keep it that way, but... Um, but I think that's sort of how I've, how I've looked at it. It's like almost like brushing my teeth or something. And at this point I don't, I don't train all the time. Like I probably do like one or two a year. I wanted to do two a year, but I got injured. But you still train at a pretty high level when you are preparing for those one or two marathons a year. Yeah. Like I, I was really excited to break three hours at CIM last year. It was just like such a perfect day. And then my plan had been to, that was a six minute PR and Um, and so I was like, well, if I just took another six minutes off this spring and then another six minutes this fall, um, then that's the trial. Yeah. You're um, knocking on the door at 245 at that point. Totally. Um, in fact, you're, I think at a 244. So, um, so that was, that was really appealing. Um, but then I, I think also by the time you like get into your thirties, you just kind of know what your injury is. And I had a glute flare up and just like couldn't really run. And I think the difference between, you know, running in my thirties at least versus running in my twenties is that I do know when to stop. Um, it's like almost like, well, great. I'll just like work on that maternity project then like, why not? And like get a little bit more sleep. Um, because I couldn't run very well and I know when to not force it. And so in my 20, in my late twenties, I just got into this, like maybe like a four or five year injury cycle. That was, it really made me think I was never going to be able to run again. And that was so sad. Um, like never race again. And then it was almost like by giving up, I wrote this article last year about Allie Kiefer because I felt like my story kind of paralleled hers a little bit where it was like giving up and letting go of that almost then when I finally did train for a marathon again, I ran my best time anyway. Well, I think a lot of us have this mentality when we hit a rut or we're in a cycle of injury, the last thing we want to do is pull back mm-hmm. and stay away. Our natural inclination is let's just keep beating my head against the wall or I'll yeah. try harder. I'll throw all these things at it. And you almost like invest too much. But what you really need is that separation because that separation lends to clarity and you can be like, oh, maybe that's where I went wrong. Mm-hmm. And you can take that chunk of time off and then come back with like renewed energy, um, some more information and, you know, most importantly, good health. Yeah. Um, because I think a lot of runners you know, that's where they get themselves into trouble. It's like, there's always like something lingering in the background. And whenever there's something lingering or preventing you from training at the level that you want to, you're just not going to perform at the level that you want to. And it just be this really vicious cycle if you're not careful. Yeah. I mean, and it can be really devastating to think, I, I mean, I, everything that I've been doing now, like in my thirties, it's been with this perspective where I really did think like my, the end of my story in this sport had been written for me. And just like every time I run a, like I have my best workout ever now, like at 35, or I have like my best, like the idea that I can still be getting PRs. I just, I didn't think that was going to be possible anyway, but I especially didn't think that was going to be possible for me because I just, the cycle of injuries. I mean, like also I've been talking about this with some other people. It's like in high school, when you make those deals with yourself where you just want to be fast right then and you know what you're doing isn't good for you then, but that you're going to face it down the line. Like when I did finally have all those stress fractures, I was like, this is what this is what I made the deal with myself for. So the idea that you can break through and get that almost like that second chance has just been, you know, I'm just so grateful. More cheesy quotes. It's like, you're never too late to be what you might have been or something like that. Yeah, but I really thought that you actually could be too late um, and that's fine. But it's been cool also to see that it's not just me. There's a lot of women like that out there. Let's go back to CIM last fall. As you just mentioned, you ran 257, broke through three hours. What was the last 
like 5k of that race, like when you realized you were right there and if you could hold on, you were definitely going to break through that barrier. This has been another really cool thing to talk with, you know, women that I don't even know that well, that I've connected with around this race. Like there were a lot of women doing this, like, uh, Veronica Jackson, for example, who was running in New York. Like we were all, even though we were at different stages of this race, like that last 5k for me, I was like, wow, I'm actually doing this. Like the excitement was huge. And again, it's just running, but it's like that I, I was just, I ran so fast and then my, my, he was my boyfriend, then he's my uh, fiance now, but he, he doesn't get very excited about running. And he was there at the final turn. Like there's like a, like a big turn at the end of CIM. And, um, so you can't see the finish line and he's like, you can go faster. And I was like, oh my gosh, I can. And so I looked at the video of me at the end and I'm like, wow, I'm sprinting. Like that is so cool. Look um, at, look at your pace profile and it's like a big shot up. Yeah. Yeah. And like, spine. I literally see myself like sprinting. And again, for someone who thought that maybe I wouldn't run marathons again, it was, it's so cool to see. Is that when you started thinking about the trials a little more seriously? Yeah. I mean, I think it's really cool to have a great race and just be like, okay, what's next? But it's really important when you do that to not, not do it as like a, oh, that wasn't good enough, but more like, oh, I wonder what else is possible. And so that's why as I'm approaching this, like, I mean, I, the idea right now that I could hold a 617 for a marathon is like almost inconceivable. I think that's fine. Um, but I think no matter what I'm going to PR and I'm like, I mean, I could probably break 250. Um, and I just never thought that would be possible before. And so I think that's so cool that, you know, you finish, that like, who knows what your limit is? I don't know. How do you wrestle with that in workouts where you'll go out and say, okay, I'm going to try to run. Cause I know you've tried to do this mm-hmm. t- sub two forty five pace for yeah. six miles and you miss by a few seconds a mile, or maybe you hit it and it's a lot harder than you thought it was. Are you mostly excited at that point that you did something you weren't able to do? Or do you get frustrated that it was as hard as it was? Or is it some sort of tug of war in between? Yeah. I mean, what I've tried to tell myself is that numbers are arbitrary and that, um, I mean, I think also we all just know this by the time we get to a certain age, like you can't force, like you, I can't actually make myself be faster than I am. Um, and there's no point in trying to do that. And then like totally failing. Like I actually really like running with my track team, center park track club, just for the company. It's like, I just, you know, latch on to a group of people. It's often a different group of people. I actually get excited when I move up, like, I'm like, oh, this person is way, like this group was way faster than me. Um, and so I think it's just focusing on the improvement as opposed to like not being an arbitrary number. Um, and then also like, you just have no idea how fast you actually are when you're in the thick of training. Um, what I do get disappointed by is when one workout isn't as fast as the workout before. I, I think trajectories I find really motivating. What have been some of the biggest takeaways from these stories that you've reported on that you've been able to directly apply to your own training and racing? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think that article that I wrote about Shalane Flanagan, the only reason that I was really interested in her approach to doing that and why I kind of, I guess, was attracted to looking at that kind of style anyways, that she kind of reminds me of some of my track teammates and captains and the people that I've really benefited on my team from knowing. And I don't know, I think like if you want to have successful friends, support them like in succeeding. Right. Um, and I think in running, that's the case as well. Like, um, I have this friend Bailey Bulkley who moved to Germany. Um, but we trained for a marathon, the marathon that was canceled, the New York city marathon that was canceled by the hurricane. Sandy. Yeah. yeah. And, she was so like most people are faster than me um that are my speed like and i can usually hold it on the on the longer distances and um there's actually a funny thing where we were at a bar after sandy canceled the marathon and this guy was talking to us and he was like so you're running richmond next week and he was like so if you're both together at the end like he was like so who's gonna win (laughs) and we were both kind of like wow i don't no. Um, and she was like, if I'm at the, and it was like really awkward. Cause I was like, Oh, we're just training together. Like we're both going to win. <laughs> like, obviously that's not true. And she was like, well, if we're at the very end, like I'll, I'll win. But she, but he was, but she was like, but if Lindsay's ahead, like, you know, then, then she's going to win because I won't be able to catch her. Um, but I just remember in track workouts, we would be like doing these laps and she'd be so much faster than me and which would be so discouraging. Mm-hmm. Um, cause you just don't know if that's going to translate to the marathon or not, but she would always put her finger down and like point right behind her for me to 
like catch up. Um, and just the idea that she wasn't trying to beat me, but wanted me to go with her. Um, like I think about that again, she's not here. I'm training mostly by myself, but I think about that all the time, even when I'm on the track, like, and even if I have teammates that aren't doing that ahead of me, I just pretend that they are. We're going to switch gears here because it's relevant to something you just said, but that article you wrote about Shalane Flanagan mm-hmm. called the Shalane effect before we got on the mics here, you're telling me a little bit about how that piece came to be after the 2017 New York City Marathon. Where were you when Shalane Flanagan won that race? Oh, that was funny. So um, usually this week for my work with OpDocs, I'm in Germany at a film festival. And that that year I also was, and I wasn't even covering the the marathon for the Times. Um, but I was stuck in the Reykjavik airport in a blizzard and um, we weren't sure if we were going to make it out. And I'm so mad because I think I was running a, I was running the Richmond Marathon the following week. I was like, I got to get my run in. Um, And I knew the New York City Marathon was happening, but in Iceland, you can't stream any of the platforms that were streaming it. And But my friend and I, my friend Michelle, who lives in D.C., um, she was texting me about it while I was in the airport. And she was like, oh, my God, like, Shalane has pulled ahead. And I'm like, okay, tell me everything. You've got to watch this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm, like, following it on Twitter. And I'm like, okay, I need to know. She's like, yeah, you need to watch this finish. And so um, Michelle FaceTimes me in as she's watching it on the television. And so we're both, like, watching it and kind of being like, wow, like, is this really happening like this is amazing and then it's funny because like we were so excited and it's like it's like mirroring Shalane's like just total joy as she's finishing like a very like fierce joy um which really resonated with me and it was like just sitting by myself in this like airport with the lights flickering just being like oh my god like you know everyone's you know everyone's kind of looking at me um and then after that I was like but this is crazy because like she's not just like this didn't just happen in a vacuum. Like, cause I think what really fascinated me was, I can't remember if Shalene was 35 or 36, I think 35 when she won. So I guess my age now. And yeah. again, I don't know, like I've never really talked to Shalene about this and I'm sure she would say that like, she always knew that she could do it and that's great. But at the same time, you always know you can do it. That That's one thing, like doing it is a total other. And what I thought was really interesting about her leadership style is that it actually helped her succeed as well. And I think that's not always emphasized. Um, in how we talk about leadership and like mentorship, like it's often looked at as this like selfless thing, um, especially with women that it's like just purely benevolent. And I think in Shalane's case, and she, she certainly says this, that mentoring her teammates and like kind of being there for them has give, like gave her like, a renewed purpose to kind of stay in the game long enough to have that career high. Cause to stay as a professional athlete through 35 or 36 as she did is, or because even 37 is just remarkable. You need something else besides yourself, I think, to do that. Yeah, it's rare. We don't see that often. And not to take it off Shalane, but same sort of thing happened with Meb Kofleski when oh, he won totally. Boston in 2013. Yeah. I mean, he was in his late 30s at that point, but it was because he was doing this for something bigger than himself. It was a year after the Boston Meb's bombings. Meb's breakthrough is, so that was the other, like, I remember I was watching Meb's breakthrough at my desk, also wasn't reporting it for work, and was just started, like, kind of, like, shrieking a little. Like, he, he had a little bit of a longer lead, um, so we kind of knew he was going to win for a little bit. And I think the sports editor, like, he G-chatted me about, like, one thing, and I was like, do you see what's happening right now with Meb? And he's like, yeah, but he may not, whatever. I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, this is huge. Um, And what really struck me about that was, I mean, not only that he's in Skechers, which was hilarious, but also that, like, the women, I mean, the women will always cheer for the leaders, the women that are, like, the other elite women who got the head start. Um, But these women were freaking out. Um, And, you know, they're mostly American. And that, to me, was really, really cool. It was like, he is winning for, like, all Americans right now. And I... So I just, like, started, like, sending the editor, like, all of this, like, I don't think you understand what just happened. Like, this is not. And so that was on the front page. I was so excited. Hearing you describe all of that is, I think, why myself and a lot of people like your writing. Because you can be objective and a journalist about it, but you are also someone who is pretty close to it. Because you're competing and training and racing at a high level. And that's one of the cool things about running, right? It's like, you can talk about your training and how you felt during a marathon. And even though Shalane Flanagan's doing it faster, Meb Kofleski's doing it faster, like, they understand, like, what you're talking about. And and vice versa. So when you're watching something, you know, like that, you can see, like, hey – like as you were saying to yeah. the sports editor at the time, like, no, 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 this is a big story. Like he's he's gonna do it. Like we need to make a big yeah. deal out of this. So so kudos to you because a lot of major publications 
I mean, reporting on running for the most part is pretty dry because it's usually someone who doesn't know anything about the sport or they're not a runner themselves. So they just don't really understand why something is meaningful or they can't connect to someone on that level. But I think you can. Um, but that's what brings your stories to life is that you can do that. But at the same time, come at it from a very objective viewpoint where you're not showing bias. Yeah, I mean, I am genuinely curious about like why certain things happen, but I think it's like having that observation in the first place, which is where if you actually connect to it, like that's what I'm able to do. And at this point, it is cool. Like I've been in the sport for so long, but in a very personal way. Um, and I, again, like I wrote that article about Shalane, I never even met her before. Um, like you don't need to know the people to kind of like understand the, the impact that they're having. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, like I wrote this article about after that terrible weather, Boston. Um, with the women, when the when I was just watching like Des break through, and then my friends, my teammates from college, sent around like the DNF list of the elites, and I was like, okay, so a lot of the women, um, like, oh, they sent around the guys one of like an, like so many guys DNF'd there. Understandably, it was awful, and then I was just like, but I bet the women, because like I saw like Shalane like stay in it even when she wasn't winning anymore, um, and you know Galen dropped out and. Again, terrible race, but I was women just, are just tougher. Yeah, and so I was just like, but I just, I bet the women's, um, I bet the women's DNF rate is is lower. And then I looked, and it was, and then I like did a bigger analysis, and I was like, women finished at higher rates in this race. And then the only other time that they did that in the past decade was when it was really hot. And like maybe there are other, maybe there are like things that we can be drawing from that. That again, I don't think on like the Tuesday and Wednesday night of that week at like three in the morning, I was able to do the deepest analysis, but it was like, it was just really, really interesting to me that we need to be observing that stuff more. That was really widely read. And I was like, if I hadn't had that thought, like maybe we need to be paying attention to this stuff more. Yeah. Well, it's very appreciated because not enough people are paying attention to it. I certainly appreciate it. I know many people listening to this do as well. So despite how busy your job and your life gets, um, please do not stop <laughs> taking on these little side projects or going down rabbit holes that interest you because what comes out of it is pretty remarkable. Yeah, thanks. I mean, I, I just, I really love this sport and I think that there are so many like things that we can draw out of it that we haven't exhausted yet. And um, I would just love to keep pursuing that to the extent that I have the capacity. Last bit before we wrap up here, I'd love to bring it back to CIM. Do you still have the trials dream alive or what would be a successful day for you in your mind? Yeah, I don't know. Um, we should talk about that actually, because I really appreciated when you, when I was sort of faltering a few weeks ago and, um, you reached out to kind of, uh, give me a little, like, kind of like re reel me back a little bit. Um, Seemed like you're on the ledge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I was, I was in one of those, like, um, my, my colleague Andrew is really great about telling me not to have catastrophic thinking, which I think is so easy and running because like, of course, it's the sum of all the parts, but at the same time, each day matters. Um, and sometimes, it can be hard to zoom out as yeah, well. Yeah. Well, sometimes I just want to like not go running um, or if I don't have time or whatever, and it just feels like too much. Um, and then you're like, well, if I don't go running today, I'm quitting the marathon. And I've done that before where I'm like, well, I didn't go running today, so I'm pushing the marathon back a month. <laughs> um, I did that last year where I was going to run New York and then ran CIM. So anyway, but there's nothing to push it back to this time, like Houston, but I'm not going to do that. Um, and so... Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think, um, I think I, I'm going to do a long run this weekend that will hopefully give me a, a better sense of my fitness. And there's like two more weeks to really, um, what do they call it? Putting hay in the barn. Um, and then after that, you know, I'll probably have that week where you dial it back a little bit and get a sense of like what I'm like on fresh legs. But I, I think it's so hard to know, like last year when I we went, wanted to break three hours, like that's just a, what, a 651. And I knew I got fitter than that and I'm not going to be fitter than 244. So I don't know what pace to go. I've got to figure that out. Back to what we were saying earlier though, it's almost like you have to, for you to have the best day that you can have, you almost have to take this idea of the trials out of it because it yeah. is like an arbitrary barrier. And if you use that as your only measure of success, but you run 249, you can oh, almost totally. lose you can almost lose sight of yeah, yeah. how big of a jump that was for you. Totally. But I don't think it's I I think to that point to try to stay motivated right now, it's again, it's all arbitrary. It's just keeping on trying to get faster. And if I can't do it, I can't do it. But um I think it's more in the taper that I'll try to get more realistic. Um Do you see yourself sticking with competitive marathoning post CIM? Um, I've told myself no. Um, I'll have to see how it goes. My 
my current suspicion is that I'm probably going to run a PR that I'm really excited about at CIM, and then I'll break 245 at a marathon where it doesn't where it doesn't count, right? Yeah. Um, and that would be the story of my life. But like always late, <laughs> but but finally you do it. Um, so I don't know. I, I think it also it doesn't matter. Like, but it's all it's all just for the fun of it, right? Yeah. Well, I hope you stick with it because I think you have a lot of untapped potential. And I think you're going to tap into quite a bit of it at CIM five weeks from this conversation. But there's more beyond that, whether it's the trials or not. And part of the fun, as long as it's still fun, is seeing how far back you can push the clock. Yeah, no, exactly. I think it's, um, it is all about the journey. Um, and you know, the, the day of is great. I mean, also I could just have a bad day. You have no, I have no idea. Um, but it's all about just like kind of doing it's what I love about running is that you're constantly pushing yourself to be better than you were before. Obviously, there's an expiration date on when that can happen, but in the case of Nick Thompson, like who who um, we're going to talk to tomorrow at the Tracksmith thing, um, uh, I've been amazed that he can do it like later in life. Still PRing in his mid forties. Yeah, yeah. Or Roberta Groner, like that's insane. Like there are so many women right now where they're redefining things that I didn't think were possible, and that's part of what's keeping me to continue even trying with myself. So. I love it. I think that's a great place to wrap up this conversation. Thank you so much for the time and welcoming me here to the New York Times offices. Yeah, thanks. I'm glad you were able to come over. All right. Another episode in the books. Thank you so much for listening in. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it on your preferred social media platform and encourage your friends and followers to tune in and subscribe to the show. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on. It only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me. A big thank you to Path Projects for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Path Projects makes running shorts with three or four zip pockets so you can carry your phone, keys, gels, ID, whatever you want really, without things bouncing around when you run. These shorts are great for both road and trail running from 5K to 240 miles and even beyond. The Prime Flex material is lightweight, dries quick, and it's breathable. They're super comfortable and allow you to move freely at whatever speed you're running. Path Projects also offers base liners, shirts, and headwear. All the gear is only available at pathprojects.com, and it ships to customers around the world. Right now, Path is giving away three $75 gift cards to Morning Shakeout listeners, and you can enter for a chance to win one of them at pathprojects.com. Mario. A big shout out, as always, to my man, John Summerford of BearsRecords.com. He's my audio ninja for the show and makes every episode sound clear and amazing. Also, thank you to Jeffrey Stern for the editorial assistance and Chris Douglas for handling sponsorship sales. I don't have a big team here at the Morning Shakeout, but these three guys, they play key roles in helping keep this ship afloat. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. You'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast.